Section 27 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 18, 1573-1577. Great as had been the injustice committed by Elizabeth in the detention of the Queen of Scots, it must be confessed that the offence brought with it its own sufficient punishment in the fears, jealousies, and disquiets which it entailed upon her. Where Mary was concerned, the most approved loyalty, the longest course of faithful service, and the truest attachment to the Protestant cause, were insufficient pledges to her oppressor of the fidelity of her nobles or ministers. The Earl of Shrewsbury, whom she had deliberately selected from all others to be the keeper of the captive queen, and whose vigilance had now for so long a period baffled all attempts for her deliverance, was to the last unable so to establish himself in the confidence of his sovereign as to be exempt from such starts of suspicion and fits of displeasure as kept him in a state of continual apprehension. Feeling with acuteness all the difficulties of his situation, this nobleman judged it expedient to cause Gilbert, Lord Talbot, his eldest son, to remain in close attendance on the motions of the Queen, charging him to study with unremitting attention all the intrigues of the court on which in that day so much depended, and to acquaint him with them frequently and minutely. To this precaution of the Earl's we owe several extant letters of Lord Talbot, which throw considerable light on the minor incidents of the time. In May 1573 this diligent news-gatherer acquaints his father that the Earl of Leicester was much with Her Majesty, that he was more than formerly solicitous to please her, and that he was as high in favour as ever, but that two sisters, Lady Sheffield and Lady Frances Howard, were deeply in love with him and at great variance with each other that the queen was on this account very angry with them and not well pleased with him and that spies were set upon him to such open demonstrations of feminine jealousy did this great queen condescend to have recourse yet she remained all her life in ignorance of the true state of this affair which in fact is not perfectly cleared up at the present day it appears that a criminal intimacy was known to subsist between Leicester and Lady Sheffield even before the death of her lord, in consequence of which this event, which was sudden, and preceded, it is said, by violent symptoms, was popularly attributed to the Italian arts of Leicester. During this year Lady Sheffield bore him a son, whose birth was carefully concealed for fear of giving offence to the Queen, though many believed that a private marriage had taken place. Afterwards he forsook the mother of his child to marry the Countess of Essex, and the deserted lady became the wife of another. In the reign of James I, many years after the death of Leicester, Sir Robert Dudley, his son, to whom he had left a great part of his fortune, laid claim to the family honours, bringing several witnesses to prove his mother's marriage, and among others his mother herself. This lady declared on oath that Leicester, in order to compel her to form that subsequent marriage in his lifetime, which must deprive her of the power of claiming him as her husband, had employed the most violent menaces, and had even attempted her life by a poisonous potion which had thrown her into an illness by which she lost her hair and nails. After the production of all this evidence, the heirs of Leicester exerted all their interest to stop proceedings, no great argument of the goodness of their cause, and Sir Robert Dudley died without having been able to bring the matter to a legal decision. In the next reign the evidence formerly given was reviewed, and the title of Duchess Dudley conferred on the widow of Sir Robert, the patent setting forth that the marriage of the Earl of Leicester with Lady Sheffield had been satisfactorily proved. So close were the contrivances, so deep, as it appears, the villainies of this celebrated favourite. But his consummate art was successful in throwing over these and other transactions of his life 
a veil of doubt and mystery which time itself has proved unable entirely to remove. Hatton was at this time ill, and Lord Talbot mentions that the Queen went daily to visit him, but that a party with which Leicester was thought to cooperate was endeavouring to bring forwards Mr. Edward Dyer to supplant him in Her Majesty's favour. This gentleman, it seems, had been for two years in disgrace, and as he had suffered during the same period from a bad state of health, the Queen was made to believe that the continuance of her displeasure was the cause of his malady, and that his recovery was, without her pardon, hopeless. This was taking her by the weak side, she loved to imagine herself the dispenser of life and death to her devoted servants, and she immediately dispatched to the sick gentleman a comfortable message, on receipt of which he was made whole. The letter-writer observes, to the honour of Lord Burley, that he concerned himself as usual only in state affairs, and suffered all these love-matters and petty intrigues to pass without notice before his eyes. All the caution, however, and all the devotedness of this great minister were insufficient to preserve him, on the following occasion, from the unworthy suspicions of his mistress. The Queen of Scots had this year with difficulty obtained permission to resort to the baths of Buxton for the recovery of her health, and a similar motive led thither at the same time the Lord Treasurer. Elizabeth marked the coincidence, and when a year or two afterwards it occurred for the second time, her displeasure broke forth. She openly accused her minister of seeking occasions of entering into intelligence with Mary by means of the Earl of Shrewsbury and his lady, and it was not without difficulty that he was able to appease her. This striking fact is thus related by Burley himself in a remarkable letter to the Earl of Shrewsbury. Lord Burley to the Earl of Shrewsbury. Quote, My very good lord, my most hearty and due commendations done, I cannot sufficiently express in words the inward hearty affection that I conceive by your lordship's friendly offer of the marriage of your younger son, and that in such a friendly sort, by your own letter, and as your lordship writeth, the same proceeding of yourself. Now, my lord, as I think myself much beholding to you for this your lordship's kindness, and manifest argument of a faithful good will, so must I pray your lordship to accept mine answer, with assured opinion of my continuance in the same towards your lordship. There are specially two causes why I do not in plain terms consent by way of conclusion hereto, the one for that my daughter is but young in years, and upon some reasonable respects I have determined, notwithstanding I have been very honourably offered matches, not to treat of marrying of her, if I may live so long, until she be above fifteen or sixteen, and if I were of more likelihood myself to live longer than I look to do, she should not, with my liking, be married before she were near eighteen or twenty. The second cause why I defer to yield to conclusion with your lordship is grounded upon such a consideration as, if it were not truly to satisfy your lordship, and to avoid a just offence which your lordship might conceive of my forbearing, I would not by writing or message utter, but only by speech to your lordship's self. My lord, it is over-true and over-much against reason, that upon my being at Buxton's last, advantage was sought by some that loved me not, to confirm in Her Majesty a former conceit which had been laboured to be put into her head, that I was of late time become friendly to the Queen of Scots, and that I had no disposition to encounter her practices, and now, at my being at Buxton's, Her Majesty did directly conceive that my being there was, by means of your lordship and my lady, to enter into intelligence with the Queen of Scots. And hereof, at my return to Her Majesty's presence, I had very sharp reproofs for my going to Buxton's, with plain charging of me for favouring the Queen of Scots, and that in so earnest a sort as I never looked for, knowing my integrity to Her Majesty, but specially knowing how contrariously the Queen of Scots conceived of me for many things past to the offence of the said Queen of Scots. And yet, true it is, I never indeed gave just cause by any private affection of my own, 
or for myself, to offend the Queen of Scots. But whatsoever I did was for the service of mine own lady and queen, which if it were again to be done I would do. And though I know myself subject to contrary workings of displeasure, yet I will not, for remedy of any of them both, decline from the duty I owe to God and my sovereign queen, for I know and do understand that I am in this contrary sort maliciously depraved, and yet in secret sort, on the one part, and that of long time, that I am the most dangerous enemy and evil-willer to the Queen of Scots, on the other side, that I am also a secret well-willer to her and her title, and that I have made my party good with her. Now, my lord, no man can make both these true together, but it sufficeth for such as like not me in doing my duty to deprave me, and yet in such sort is done in darkness as I cannot get opportunity to convince them in the light. In all these crossings, my good lord, I appeal to God, who knoweth, yea, I thank him infinitely, who directeth my thoughts to intend principally the service and honour of God, and jointly with that the surety and greatness of my sovereign lady, the Queen's Majesty, and for any other respect but that may tend to those two, I appeal to God to punish me if I have any. As for the Queen of Scots, truly I have no spot of evil meaning to her, neither do I mean to deal with any titles to the crown. If she shall intend any evil to the Queen's Majesty, my sovereign, for her sake I must and will mean to impeach her, therein I may be her unfriend or worse. Well, now, my good lord, your lordship seeth I have made a long digression for my answer, but I trust your lordship can consider what moveth me thus to digress. Surely it behoveth me not only to live uprightly, but to avoid all probable arguments that may be gathered to render me suspected to her majesty, whom I serve with all dutifulness and sincerity, and therefore I gather this, that if it were understood that there were a communication, or a purpose of a marriage between your lordship's son and my daughter, I am sure there would be an advantage sought to increase these former suspicions. Listeners note, there is a word missing here. Purpose. Considering the young years of our two children, again word missing, as if the matter were fully agreed betwixt us, the parents, the marriage could not take effect. I think it best to refer the motion in silence, and yet so to order it with ourselves, that when time shall hereafter be more convenient, we may, and then also with less cause of vain suspicion, renew it. And in the meantime, I must confess myself much bounden to your lordship for your goodness, wishing your lordship's son all the good education that may be meet to teach him to fear God, love your lordship his natural father, and to know his friends, without any curiosity of human learning, which, without the fear of God, I see doth much hurt to all youth in this time and age. My lord, I pray you bear with my scribbling, which I think your lordship shall hardly read, and yet I would not use my man's hand in such a matter as this from Hampton Court, 25th December, 1575. Your Lordship's most assured at command. W. Burley. A similar caution to that of Lord Burley was not observed in the disposal of her daughters by the Countess of Shrewsbury, a woman remarkable above all her contemporaries for a violent, restless, and intriguing spirit, and an inordinate thirst of money and of sway. She brought to effect in 1574 a marriage between Elizabeth Cavendish, her daughter by a former husband, and Charles Stuart, brother of Darnley, and next to the King of Scots in the order of succession to the crowns both of England and Scotland. Notwithstanding the rooted enmity between Mary and the House of Lennox, this union was supposed to be the result of some private intrigue between Lady Shrewsbury and the captive Queen, and in consequence of it, Elizabeth committed to custody for some time both the mother of the bride and the unfortunate Countess of Lennox, doomed to expiate by such a variety of sufferings the unpardonable offence, in the eyes of Elizabeth, of having given heirs to the British sceptres. A signal occasion presented itself to the Queen in 1575, of demonstrating to all neighbouring powers 
that whatever suspicions her close and somewhat crooked system of policy might now and then have excited, self-defence was in reality its genuine principle and single object, and that the clear and comprehensive view which she had taken of her own true interests, joined to the habitual caution of her character, would ever restrain her from availing herself of the most tempting opportunities of aggrandizement at their expense. The provinces of Holland and Zealand, goaded into revolt by the bigotry and barbarity of Philip of Spain, had from the first experienced in the English nation, and even in Elizabeth herself, a disposition to encourage and shelter them, and despairing of being able longer to maintain alone the unequal contest which they had provoked, yet resolute to return no more under the tyranny of a detested master, they now embraced the resolution of throwing themselves entirely upon her protection. It was urged that Elizabeth, as descended from Philippa, wife of Edward III, a daughter of that Count of Hainault and Holland, from one of whose co-heiresses the King of Spain derived the Flemish part of his dominions, might claim somewhat of a hereditary title to their allegiance, and a solemn deputation was appointed to offer to her the sovereignty of the provinces on condition of defending them from the Spaniards. There was much in the proposal to flatter the pride and tempt the ambition of a prince, much also to gratify that desire of retaliation which the encouragement given by Philip to the northern rebellion and to certain movements in Ireland, as well as to all the machinations of the Queen of Scots, may reasonably be supposed to have excited in the bosom of Elizabeth. Zeal for the Protestant cause, had she ever entertained it separately from considerations of personal interest and safety, might have proved a further inducement with her to accept the patronage of these afflicted provinces. But not all the motives which could be urged were a force to divert her from her settled plan of policy, and after a short interval of anxious hesitation, she resolved to dismiss the envoys with an absolute refusal. The speech which she addressed to them on this occasion was highly characteristic, and in one point extremely remarkable. She reprobated, doubtless with great sincerity, the principle that there were cases in which subjects might be justified in throwing off allegiance to their lawful prince, and protested that for herself nothing could ever tempt her to usurp upon the dominions either of her good brother of Spain or any other prince. Finally, she took upon her to advert to the religious scruples which had produced the revolt of the Hollanders, in a tone of levity which it is difficult to understand her motive for assuming, since it could not fail, from her lips especially, to give extreme scandal to the deputies and to all other serious men. She said that it was unreasonable in the Dutch to have stirred up so great a commotion merely on account of the celebration of Mass, and that so contumacious a resistance to their king could never redound to their honour, since they were not compelled to believe in the divinity of the Mass, but only to be spectators of its performance, as at a public spectacle. Quote, what, said she, if I were to begin to act some scene in a dress like this, for she was clad in white like a priest, should you regard it as a crime to behold it? Was the queen here making the apology of her own compliances under the reign of her sister, or was she generously furnishing a salvo for others? In any case, the sentiment, as coming from the heroine of Protestantism, is extraordinary. An ineffectual remonstrance, addressed by Elizabeth to the King of Spain, was the only immediate result of this attempt of the provinces to engage her in their concerns. She kept a watchful eye, however, upon their great and glorious struggle, and the time at length came when she found it expedient to unite more closely her interest with theirs. England now enjoyed profound tranquillity, internal and external, and our analysts find leisure to advert to various circumstances of domestic history. They mention a corporation formed for the transmutation of iron into copper, by the method of one medley an alchemist, of which the learned but credulous Sir Thomas Smith, Secretary of State, was a principal promoter, 
and in which both Leicester and Burley embarked some capital. The master of the mint ventured to express a doubt of the success of the experiment, because the adept had engaged that the weight of copper procured should exceed that of all the substances employed in its production. But nobody seems to have felt the force of this simple objection, and great was the disappointment of all concerned when at length the bubble burst. About the same time the famous Dr. D., mathematician, astrologer, and professor of the occult sciences, being pressed by poverty, supplicated Burley to procure Her Majesty's patronage for his infallible method of discovering hidden treasures. This person, who stood at the head of his class, had been early protected by Leicester, who employed him to fix a lucky day for the Queen's coronation. He had since been patronized by Her Majesty, who once visited him at his house at Mortlake, took lessons of him in astronomy, and occasionally supplied him with money to defray the expenses of his experiment. She likewise presented him to some ecclesiastical benefices, but he often complained of the delay or non-performance of her promises of pensions and preferment. On one occasion he was sent to the Continent, ostensibly for the purpose of consulting physicians and philosophers on the state of Her Majesty's health, but probably not without some secret political commission. After a variety of wild adventures in different countries of Europe, in which he and his associate Kelly discovered still more knavery than credulity in the exercise of their various false sciences and fallacious arts, Dee was invited home by Her Majesty in 1589, and was afterwards presented by her with the wardenship of Manchester College. But he was hated and sometimes insulted by the people as a conjurer, quarrelled with the fellows of his college, quitted Manchester in disgust, and failing to obtain the countenance of King James, died at length in poverty and neglect the ordinary fate of his class of projectors. Elizabeth performed a more laudable part in lending her support to the enterprise of that able and spirited navigator, Martin Frobisher, who had long been soliciting in vain among the merchants the means of attempting a northwest passage to the Indies, and was finally supplied by the Queen with two small vessels. With these he set sail in June 1576, and though unsuccessful in the prime object of his voyage, extended considerably the previous acquaintance of navigators with the coasts of Greenland, and became the discoverer of the straits which still bear his name. A sect called, quote, the Family of Love, end quote, had lately sprung up in England. Its doctrines, notwithstanding the frightful reports raised of them, were probably dangerous neither to the established church, with the rites of which the brethren willingly complied, nor yet to the state, and it may be doubted whether they were in any respect incompatible with private morals but no innovations in religion were regarded as tolerable or venial under the rigid administration of Elizabeth, and the leaders of the new heresy were taken into custody, and compelled to recant. Some Anabaptists were apprehended about the same time, who acknowledged their error at Paul's cross, bearing faggots, the tremendous symbol of the fate from which their recantation had rescued them. Two of these unhappy men, however, repented of the disingenuous act into which human frailty had betrayed them, and returning to the open profession of their opinions, were burned in Smithfield, to the eternal opprobrium of Protestant principles, and the deep disgrace of the governess and institutress of the Anglican Church. The observation of Lord Talbot, that the Earl of Leicester showed himself more than ever solicitous to improve the favour of his sovereign, received confirmation from the unparalleled magnificence of the reception which he provided for her when, during her progress in the summer of 1575, she honoured him with a visit in Warwickshire. The, quote, princely pleasures of Kenilworth, end quote, were famed in their day as the quintessence of all courtly delight, and very long and very pompous descriptions of these festive devices have come down to our times. They were conducted on a scale of grandeur and expense which may still surprise, but taste as yet was in its infancy, and the whole was characterized by the unmerciful tediousness, 
the ludicrous incongruities and the operose pedantry of a semi-barbarous age a temporary bridge seventy feet in length was thrown across a valley to the great gate of the castle and its posts were hung with the offerings of seven of the grecian deities to her majesty displaying in grotesque assemblage cages of various large birds fruits corn fishes grapes and wine in silver vessels musical instruments of many kinds and weapons and armour hung trophy-wise on two ragged staves a poet standing at the end of the bridge explained in latin verse the meaning of all the lady of the lake invisible since the disappearance of the renowned prince arthur approached on a floating island along the moat to recite adulatory verses arian being summoned for the like purpose appeared on a dolphin four-and-twenty feet long which carried in its belly a whole orchestra a sibyl a quote-unquote salvage man and an echo posted in the park all harangued in the same strain music and dancing enlivened the sunday evening splendid fireworks were displayed both on land and water a play was performed an italian tumbler exhibited his feats thirteen bears were baited there were three stag hunts and a representation of a country bridal followed by running at the quintin finally the men of coventry exhibited by express permission their annual mock fight in commemoration of a signal defeat of the danes nineteen days did the earl of leicester sustain the overwhelming honour of this royal visit a demonstration of her majesty's satisfaction in her entertainment quite unexampled but which probably awakened less envy than any other token of her peculiar grace by which she might have been pleased to distinguish her favourite no domestic incident had for a long time excited so strong a sensation as the death of walter devereux earl of essex which took place at dublin in the autumn of the year fifteen seventy six this nobleman is celebrated for his talents his virtues his unfortunate and untimely death and also as the father of a son still more distinguished and destined to a fate yet more disastrous he was of illustrious descent deriving a part of his hereditary honours from the lords ferrers of chartley and the rest from the noble family of bowshire through a daughter of thomas of woodstock youngest son of edward the third in his nineteenth year he succeeded his grandfather as viscount hereford and coming to court attracted the merited commendations of her majesty by his learning his abilities and his ingenuous modesty during a short period the viscount was joined in commission with the earls of huntington and shrewsbury for the safe keeping of the queen of scots on the breaking out of the northern rebellion he joined the royal army with all the forces he could raise and in reward of this forwardness in her service her majesty conferred on him the garter and subsequently invested him after the most solemn and honourable form of creation with the dignity of earl of essex long hereditary in the house of bowshire by these marks of favour the jealousy of leicester and of other courtiers was strongly excited but with little cause the spirit of the earl had too much of boldness of enterprise of a high-souled generosity to permit him to take root and flourish in that scene of treachery and intrigue a court it quickly prompted him to seek occupation at a distance in the attempt to subdue and civilize a turbulent irish province he solicited and obtained from the queen by a kind of agreement then not unusual a grant to himself and the adventurers under him of half of the district of clandeboy in ulster on condition of his rescuing and defending the whole of it from the rebels and defraying half the expenses of the service great things were expected from his expedition on which he embarked in august fifteen seventy three but sir william fitzwilliams deputy of ireland viewed the arrival of the earl with sentiments which led him to oppose every possible obstacle to his success probably too essex himself found on trial the task of subduing the irishry as the natives of the island were then called a more difficult one than he had anticipated 
some brilliant service however amid many delays and disappointments he performed in various parts of the country and having returned to england in fifteen seventy five to lay all his grievances before the queen and face the court faction which injured him in his absence he was sent back with the title of marshal of ireland an appointment which leicester for his own purposes is said to have been active in procuring him sir henry sidney had now succeeded fitzwilliams as lord deputy and from him it does not appear that essex had the same systematic opposition to encounter on the contrary having been applied to by the queen for his opinion of the expediency of granting several requests of the earl relative to this service sir henry advised her majesty to comply with most of them prefacing his counsel with the following sentence quote, of the earl i must say that he is so noble and worthy a personage and so forward in all his actions and so complete a gentleman wherein he may either advance your honour or service as you may take comfort to have in store so rare a subject who hath nothing in greater regard than to show himself such a one indeed as the common fame reporteth him which hath been no more in troth than his due deserts and painful travels in the worst parts of this miserable country have deserved such in fact was the apparent cordiality between the deputy and the marshal that a proposal passed for the marriage of philip sidney to the lady penelope devereux daughter of the earl but if this friendship were ever sincere on the part of sir henry it was at least short-lived for writing a few months after essex's death to leicester respecting the earl of ormond whom the favourite regarded as his enemy he says quote, in fine my lord i am ready to accord with him but my most dear lord and brother be you upon your keeping for him for if essex had lived you should have found him as violent an enemy as his heart power and cunning would have served him to have been and for that their malice i take god to record i could brook neither of them both ireland was during the whole of elizabeth's reign that part of her dominions which it cost her most trouble to govern and with which her system of policy prospered the least without a considerable military force it was impossible to bring into subjection those parts of the country which still remained in a state of barbarism under the sway of native chieftains or even to preserve in safety and civility such districts as were already reclaimed and brought within the english pale but the queen's parsimony or more truly the narrowness of her income caused her perpetually to repine at the great expenses to which she was put for this service and frequently to run the risk of losing all that had been slowly gained by a sudden withdrawment or long delay of the necessary supplies her suspicious temper caused her likewise to lend ready ear to the complaints whether founded or not brought by the disaffected irish against her officers sir henry sidney himself the deputy whom she most favoured and trusted and continued longer in office than any other supported as he was at court by the potent influence of leicester and the steady friendship of burleigh had many causes offered him of vexation and discontent and those who held inferior commands and were less ably protected from the attacks of their enemies experienced almost insupportable anxieties from counteractions difficulties and hardships of every kind of these the unfortunate earl of essex had his full share the hopes of improving his fortune with which he had entered upon the service were so far from being realized that he found himself sinking continually deeper in debt his efforts against the rebels were by no means uniformly successful his court enemies contrived to divert most of the succours designed him by his sovereign and the perplexities of his situation went on accumulating instead of diminishing the bodily fatigue which he endured in the prosecution of his designs joined to the anguish of a wounded spirit undermined at length the powers of his constitution and after repeated attacks he was carried off by a dysentery in september fifteen seventy six essex was liberal affable brave and eloquent and generally beloved both in england and ireland 
the symptoms of his disease, though such as exposure alone to the pestilential damps of the climate might well have produced, were also susceptible of being ascribed to poison, and one of his attendants, a divine who likewise professed medicine, seeing him in great pain, suddenly exclaimed, quote, "'By the mass, my lord, you are poisoned!' The report spread like wildfire. To common minds it is a relief under irremediable misfortune to find an object for blame, and accordingly, though no direct evidence of the fact was produced, it was universally believed that some villain had administered to him, quote, "'an ill drink,' as Leicester was known to be his enemy, strongly suspected of an intrigue with his wife, and believed capable of any enormity, the friends and partisans of Essex seem immediately to have pointed at him as the contriver of his death. Yet I find no contemporary evidence of the imputation, except in the conduct of Sir Henry Sidney on this occasion, which indicates great anxiety for the reputation of his patron and brother-in-law. The Lord Deputy was unfortunately absent from Dublin at the time of the Earl of Essex's death and before he could institute a regular examination into the manner of it, a thousand false tales had been circulated, which were greedily received by the public. On his return, however, he entered into the investigation with great zeal and diligence. The decisive test of an examination of the body was not indeed applied, for it was one with which that age seems to have been unacquainted. But many witnesses were called, reports were traced to their source, and in some instances disproved and the result of the whole was transmitted by the deputy to the Privy Council, in a letter which appears satisfactorily to prove that there was no solid ground to ascribe the event to any but natural causes. That the deputy himself was convinced of the correctness of this representation is seen from one of his private letters to Leicester, published long after in the Sydney papers. In all probability, posterity would scarcely have heard of this imputation on the character of Leicester, had not his marriage with the widow of Essex served as corroboration of the charge, and given occasion to the malicious comments of the author of quote, Leicester's Commonwealth. End quote. This union, however, was not publicly celebrated till two years afterwards, and we have no certain authority for the fact of the criminal connection of the parties during the life of the Earl of Essex, nor for the private marriage said to have been huddled up with indecent precipitation on his decease. Walter, Earl of Essex, left Robert his son and successor, then in the tenth year of his age, to the care and protection of the Earl of Sussex and Lord Burley. But Mr. Edward Waterhouse, a person of great merit and abilities, then employed in Ireland and distinguished by the favour both of Lord Burley and Sir Henry Sidney, had the immediate management of the fortune and affairs of the minor. Of this friend Essex is related to have taken leave in his last moments, with many kisses, exclaiming, quote, "'O oh, my Ned, my Ned, farewell! Thou art the faithfulest and friendliest gentleman that ever I knew!' he proved the fidelity of his attachment by attending the body of the Earl to Wales, whither it was conveyed for interment, and it was thence that he immediately afterwards addressed to Sir Henry Sidney a letter, of which the following is an extract. Quote, the state of the Earl of Essex, being best known to myself, doth require my travel for a time in his causes. But my burden cannot be great when every man putteth to his helping hand. Her Majesty hath bestowed upon the young Earl his marriage, and all his father's rules in Wales, and promiseth the remission of his debt. The lords do generally favour and further him, some for the trust reposed, some for the love to the father, other for affinity with the child, and some for other causes. All these lords that wish well to the children, and I suppose all the best sort of the English lords besides, do expect what will become of the treaty between Mr. Philip and my lady Penelope. Truly, my lord, I must say to your lordship, as I have said to my lord of Leicester and Mr. Philip, the breaking off of this match, if the default be on your parts, 
will turn to more dishonour than can be repaired with any other marriage in England. And I protest unto your lordship, I do not think that there is at this day so strong a man in England of friends as the little Earl of Essex, nor any man more lamented than his father since the death of King Edward." Under such high auspices, and with such a general consent of men's minds in his favour, did the celebrated, the rash, the lamented Essex commence his brief and ill-starred course. The match between Philip Sidney and Lady Penelope Devereux was finally broken off, as Waterhouse seems to have apprehended. She married Lord Rich, and afterwards Charles Blount, Earl of Devonshire, on whose account she had been divorced from her first husband. How little all the dark suspicions and sinister reports to which the death of the Earl of Essex had given occasion were able to influence the mind of Elizabeth against the man of her heart, may appear by the tenor of an extraordinary letter written by her in June 1577 to the Earl and Countess of Shrewsbury. Quote, our very good cousins, being given to understand from our cousin of Leicester how honourably he was not only lately received by you, our cousin, the Countess at Chatsworth, and his diet by you both discharged at Buxton's, but also presented with a very rare present, we should do him great wrong, holding him in that place of favour we do, in case we should not let you understand in how thankful sort we accept the same at both your hands, not as done unto him but to our own self, reputing him as another self, and therefore you may assure yourselves that we, taking upon us the debt, not as his but our own, will take care accordingly to discharge the same in such honourable sort, as so well deserving creditors, as ye shall never have cause to think ye have met with an ungrateful debtor, etc. Lord Talbot, on another occasion, urged upon his father the policy of ingratiating himself with Leicester, by a pressing invitation to Chatsworth, adding, moreover, that he did not believe it would greatly either further or hinder his going into that part of the country. End of section 27